Hello, and welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. My name is Melissa Pitati, and this podcast is part of the CHS Alliance initiative to change our experience of power, culture, and well-being in aid organizations so we can better meet the core humanitarian standard. Today, you'll hear me in conversation with Asim Prakash and Tosco Bruda van Weifeigen about governance of aid organizations. We talk about recognizing the power dynamics, embracing difference, true difference, modeling behaviors, and asking the smart questions. Asim is a professor of political science at the University of Washington, Seattle. He's widely published on issues of governance and regulations of nonprofits, but also governments and firms. Tosca is a principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting, who works with leaders on change management, organizational culture change, governance, virtual team leadership, and gender, among other topics. I wanted to talk to them both because of their recent fascinating conversation in episode 37 of Tosca's podcast called NGO Soul Plus Strategy. I'll put a link to that in our show notes. And I want to give a shout out to Rachel Jacko and Natalie Gons for recommending I listen to that episode as we work together on a project of the CHS Alliance called Governing Well. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So I would like to welcome to the Embodying Change podcast two special guests, Asim Prakash and Tosca Bruno van Weifeiken, or Tosca of the Five Oaks. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, Thank perhaps... you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thank you. Um, rather than me reading your bios, I wonder, uh, before we dive into the juicy content, would you like to each introduce yourself? Perhaps, Asim, would you like to start just by introducing yourself to our audience? Sure. Thank you. Great to be on your podcast. I'm, I'm Asim Prakash. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Washington, Seattle. And I write on issues of governance and regulation in, in government, in nonprofits, and in firms. Mm-hmm. Because I think there are a lot of similarities between different governance forms. Mm-hmm. And as scholars, as practitioners, as people who are concerned about the state of the world, we need to take a broader perspective Mm-hmm. of institutional failures that are affecting institutions across sectors. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Asim. And how about you, Tosca? Would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm grateful to, to be part of this um, podcast. I, I am Tosca, indeed, Bruno van Feijwegen, and that does mean, indeed, <laughs> Tosca of the Five Oak Trees, and thus my consulting practice is called Five Oaks Consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have shifted identities over the course of my professional life. So I used to be an international development practitioner who used to work with uh, NGOs, but also in the UN and the World Bank and in a, a think tank in the Netherlands. I then became an accidental academic at Syracuse University here in the US at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Management, mm-hmm. uh, where I led work on organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and governance of INGOs mm-hmm. um, or transnational NGOs. And I am currently the principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. And I love to work with senior leaders on change management, on organizational culture change, on governance and governance reviews, and a few other side interests like virtual team leadership and gender and leadership. Brilliant. Now, the reason that I've invited you both on to the podcast today is because I 
I listened more than three times to your interview. Um, Tosca, you have a podcast called NGO Soul Plus Strategy, and you had a seam on, and we're talking about the virtue narrative. And you touched on some issues regarding accountability, regarding governance, and these uh, several of the themes that came out of your conversation, I felt like I really wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to have part two of your podcast episode because uh, it's so relevant right now to what we're seeing in the CHS Alliance conversations about how organizations can meet their standard, the core humanitarian standard commitments to people affected by crisis, but also how can uh, the humanitarian sector as a broader system have more accountability. Um, So before I dive into the things that came out of your conversation, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Tuska, I first came to know your work uh, back in, I, I think it was 2019, um, where you had written an essay, and I think it was at the uh, encouragement of Asim, so it's a small yeah. world, um, about how organizational culture could help explain some of the recent INGO scandals organizational culture. And within that, you had identified things like individual leadership traits, um, uh, culture of silence. And um, something I'm very interested in, looking at the presence of deep power structures in NGO. This is something that we keep running up against when we talk about um, behavior change and behavior change that's required. So I wondered if you just, before we dive into that um, other conversation, if you wanted to say anything, um, now looking back at that piece of work, uh, what really stood out for you from that exploration of how organizational culture might explain some of the things we're seeing in our sector? Mm. A lot of my work that is more of the thought leadership kind of nature, um, as different from the very applied consulting work, is really about the fact that I think in our sector, um, there's a bit of a mm, dishonesty Mm. in how in, in acknowledging that there are gaps between our espoused values and the principles that we say we are all about and our real in-use or in-practice values, mm. right? I'm not saying that that is not the case in government or in the private sector either, mm-hmm. but that is something I feel that we have a particular problem with is partially because I think staff as well as organizations feel strong identity with the work Mm -hmm. Um, and our work is our identity Mm -hmm. often and that means that we're particularly brittle when we are being challenged that there is this gap between the espoused culture and the real in-use behavior and so the the work and by the way this is the work uh, by uh, Srilata Batliwala and Aurunarao etc at Gender at Work it is not at all my work and again they also tap into uh, previous theoretical work um, on deep structures indicates that behind the formal um, people in formal power uh, formal positional power if you will mm-hmm. there are quite often kind of cliques or factions or caucuses within organizations. So we're now thinking really more from a political frame. If mm-hmm. you think about the work by Bowman and Deal, for instance, um, that um, define what is the, what is really going on below mm-hmm. the surface, mm-hmm. right? And that define who really are the heroes who are rewarded time and time again for certain behaviors. 
Um, and these informal power structures that Srilata and others have pointed to, I think, do explain one of many factors why organizational uh, culture may have been one of the explanatory factors for the, the crisis that we've had in a, in a number of our organizations. Thank you. Asim, did you want to add to that? Is anything coming across to you as you're hearing Tosca speak? No, I, I'm just echoing Tosca's excellent points. So the issue is, that there are two, three different issues. One is, how do we define organizational culture mm-hmm. in a very tangible way? <clears throat> how do we observe it, if not measure it? Mm-hmm. And second, why do organizations vary in their cultures? Assuming we have a typology of organizational cultures that are acceptable in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. And third, if certain organizational cultures are unacceptable mm-hmm. or they're dysfunctional, how do we change it? Mm-hmm. Is the source of change internal to the organization mm-hmm. or do we need external interventions like a major scandal that forces the organization to confront itself? And this is not only a problem of the nonprofit sector, it's a problem in the government. Mm-hmm. It's a problem in firms. It's a problem in families mm-hmm. because families are also organizations mm-hmm. with their own power dynamics. Mm-hmm. So I think whenever human beings come together for collective action, mm-hmm. whenever there are you know more than one individual, we have the issue of power. In your initial comments, you talked about power. Mm-hmm. And power essentially means the ability to influence the preferences and activities of others. Mm-hmm. So we have to, at the end of the day, try to understand the issue of power. We can't run away from power because, as I said, two people are not alike. So in any collective setting, power is intrinsic to any interaction. Mm -hmm. But the issue is, power is like a beast. How do we marshal the energy of the power to get something productive about it? It's like a bull in the china shop, but how do we make sure that we remove the china shop and use the energy of the bull for plowing the field? And I think that's what we need. Wow, that's so powerful, the images, uh, the the bull in the china shop or the bull plowing the field. Um, and Toski mentioned positional power. What we've been trying to do in our work at CHS Alliance right now is touch on different points or parts of the ecosystem that have this kind of formal or positional power. So we had um, a, a project called Leading Well, where we interviewed 15 aid CEOs from the shared membership of CHS Alliance and ICFA and asked them uh, how they could do, uh, how they saw their role with regard to um, the organizational culture and the staff well-being. And they pointed to the broader pressures they're under uh, related to things like you mentioned in your last podcast discussion of looking at the professionalization, looking at the competition, looking at uh, the fact we're operating in contexts that are subject to intergenerational trauma and constant disruption. Um, and also the people coming into this work might have uh, high ideals of high values and want to make a difference, but also might have some issues to deal with them, their own selves. But in terms of the positional power, what now what we're looking at after looking at the, the, the CEOs is looking at the role of governing boards because we feel that they have a role to play in an accountable sector. And perhaps they could be asking some really uh, probing questions to get a sense of how power plays out in their organizations. So turning to that, uh, um, Asim, you mentioned 
astutely in the last conversation you had with Tosca, that many of the boards that are governing our aid agencies, they don't have membership representing the lived experience of the people that we're serving. Correct. See, at Just Alliance, we have two people on our board that have a lived experience and they bring such rich perspectives to the table. Um, I'm curious, what could governing boards be doing to get more of that lived experience to be informing how they work, uh, having more representation, you mentioned uh, having perhaps more immersion opportunities, um, but what, what do you think we could do about this lived experience issue? Asim, do you want to start? I do. <clears throat> so my first job before I became an academic was in Procter & Gamble. I have an MBA and I was in marketing and marketing essentially means you're operating from the head office, looking at branding, advertising. And the rule in Procter & Gamble was that every new inductee had to undergo a sales training. So essentially in the Indian context, you go with the Procter & Gamble salesperson shop to shop, mm-hmm. try to sell your product. <laughs> and you interact with the distributors, mm-hmm. you travel in public transport. So I've traveled mm-hmm. on the roof of public buses mm-hmm. because the buses were crowded. So I'm talking about 1980s. So I understood that was probably one of the most important three, four months of my life in trying to understand how the country functions and how divorced I was from the country. And the problems, you know, our Procter & Gamble's sales force faces in placing the product on the shelves. So if you don't have supermarkets, you have to essentially do retail shop by shop. So that was a lived experience mm-hmm. that you face the hardships, you live the hardships of the people you think are your customers. So it's similar to you know, people who go, young Americans who do the Peace Corps, mm-hmm. go overseas. When they come back, they're completely transformed. Yes, they are. So they, re- they realize that, you know, we assume here we open the tap water, the water will come out. Of course, the United <laughs> States is now having a lot of problem. But in a place like India, even in Delhi, if you open the tap, the water will not come out. And if the water comes out, you can't drink it. You'll have to boil it. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is, if you are really trying to serve people who are displaced, Mm -hmm. who don't have resources, who've had terrible trauma because they've been displaced. So you have to understand the whole issue about access to food, access to medication, uh, education, or any kind of public services that NGOs provide Mm -hmm. from their perspective. So in an ideal world, one would try to incorporate people who have recently undergone that experience mm-hmm. in the decision-making process, even if they don't have a formal position. Mm-hmm. But it's at the end of the day, one has to understand that without experiencing certain, certain aspects of life, mm-hmm. it's difficult to have true empathy. Mm-hmm. There's no vicarious learning here. Mm-hmm. So that's the importance of lived experience. Brilliant. Tosca, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, a couple of other other points. I loved uh, the fact, um, I seem that you brought back into my memory that that um, the point about immersion. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder, so we know, for instance, at the World Bank, you remember in the mm-hmm. 1990s with uh, Robert James, etc., he put in place for World Bank senior leaders a, a village, a week in the village kind of experience. I know for some of those leaders that was uh, that had a long-term effect. I don't know that that is the case 
in that particular case, at least for uh, for all of them in terms of a long time impact. But I do think it is is very very helpful. Um, to me, uh, Melissa, the um, when we bring on people with lived experience into a board, first of all, I don't want us to be romantic about it. And sometimes mm. we, we tend to do that in our sector, in my observation, at least. Um, I am romantic. Um, <laughs> um, so so um, in, in the sense of we, we want to have our eyes wide open if uh, yeah. If we bring in people with lived experience, especially mm-hmm. if it's one person, which I'll say mm-hmm. something about in a moment, as mm-hmm. different from a critical mass of at least two to three, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who has not had previous extensive interaction or observations on the kind of the organization with all mm-hmm. its mechanics, right? With all its competing values that need to be balanced in some way, the interest of staff, the interest of program participants, the interest of donors, the interest mm-hmm. of national governments, etc. Um, then tokenism is very quickly the, oh, name, yes. of, the name of the game, Absolutely. right? And I, I have been on one or two boards mm-hmm. where we had one person and that actually in one case was not tokenism, but that person had already person with direct lived experience. Mm-hmm. We're talking about adult literacy mm-hmm. who had already been volunteering at the organizational level, not just at the local level for a number of years. So that person could both relate to and influence the mm-hmm. discourse at the board level. If, if you want to be fancy about it, right. Um, so that point about our organizations are heavily professionalized. I think that is, that's a different discussion, whether it's good or bad. I am actually very value neutral about that, but that is a different discussion, I think. But they're heavily professionalized. They're very complex and they have to balance a lot of competing interests and competing mm-hmm. values even. And so we want to have at least two to three people with lived experience on a board. We know this from the research on board diversity when it comes to other board profiles, right? So whether it's race, um, people of color, people, different mm-hmm. identities, even gender, there are still plenty of boards that are male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need that critical mass so that these three people can start to reinforce each other, build on each other, yes. right? And then you have to have really good ally, allyship practices mm-hmm. on the side of at least a part of the rest of the board mm-hmm. to get to a meaningful involvement. Mm-hmm. I have some other thoughts about that, but let me stop there to see what, what Asim and, and yourself, Melissa, think about that. I have lots of well, thoughts, but I give to Asim. Yes, first you. <laughs> no, I, I agree with Oscar. Mm-hmm. Tokenism is dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And just because you have a single person with lived experience, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that person speaks on behalf of the community. Oftentimes, people who have the skills to participate in boards are the elites. And their <laughs> lived experience could be quite different from the lived experience mm. of the ordinary people. Mm. So one should not have, I think, Tosca's, you know, kind of warning yeah. about, you know, not becoming too romantic is very important. So that's why lived experience, not in terms of tokenism, but every board member, to the extent mm-hmm. possible, mm-hmm. should have some exposure mm. to lived experience. You know, going for a week in a village wearing a mm. tie and living in an air-conditioned hut is not exactly a lived experience. <laughs> so the idea is that, you know, you go there anonymous and, you know, travel in the public bus, mm-hmm. get in the line for public toilets. I apologize for the crude example. Yeah. And then try to understand yeah. 
the difficulties people face, you know, queuing up, you know, if you want to serve women in rural areas, try to live their experience, you know, walking two hours to collect firewood, walking another two hours to collect water, and then coming home and then mm-hmm. doing the farm work because the husband or the man of the house has now moved to urban area in search of mm-hmm. employment. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think overall, we need people to get out of boardrooms and mm-hmm. actually go and visit the places they think they're serving and not as tourists, mm-hmm. actually go. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they must have the linguistic skills. So for example, in India, a lot of the NGO types, they essentially speak English. In fact, a lot of the NGO researchers in India don't read the local newspapers in local languages, whereas only 4 to 5% of Indians speak English. Mm-hmm. And Indian English is very different to me. You know, we call it mm-hmm. English. It's a English. mixture of Indian English. Mm. English. So if you really want to serve, you know, people in slums of Delhi or Mumbai or Chennai or Calcutta, Kolkata, then you at least have to know the local language. How would you converse with them? How would you understand what's going on? So it requires a deep commitment. Yes. Which means it requires specialization, which has both pros and cons. Right. Right. So I think Tosca is very astute observation about tokenism and, and fake we- lived experience. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the fact that we have elites within elites, right? Um, Absolutely. So there's, there's nothing to be romanticized about. There's one step back, Melissa, yes. uh, if you allow me, or would you yes, like to? Yes, go ahead, please. Okay, just one step back still. There is, because all of this, uh, uh, to my mind at least, ultimately comes back to, like, what is your paradigm for diversity that you are after right yes. and this is from very old work that was published yes. in the u.s in i think 1996 mm-hmm. um, that i still find very valuable um, and this is not just about people with lived experience on a board but about diversity in organizations including in boards mm-hmm. do you want diversity because, simply from a kind of a legal fairness perspective i don't think that that's what ngos are so much about for on this topic of people mm-hmm. with lived experience on boards mm-hmm. do we want it because we want our board to um to embody and to look like our program constituents right? A primary constituents, as in program participants, uh, as in uh, people served, etc. So do we want that kind of mirroring? Mm -hmm. Or do we want to aim for and this is not Mm -hmm. easy, but Mm -hmm. aim for the highest level of diversity, where you're actually aiming for that unlike minded character by which I mean the people who are different from the norm right in boards and those are very often white Mm -hmm. very often but not solely male and Mm -hmm. definitely highly professionalized people Mm -hmm. some with great wealth as well Mm -hmm. do we want that newer profile of board member with lived experience do we want them to actually not to assimilate, but to actually change the very definition mm-hmm. of what the organization does, what the work is, mm-hmm. the, change the, the, what the ways of working of the organization are, and ultimately changing the culture. Mm-hmm. And that's, that last paradigm is a very high bar. And yes. when we did this kind of work with leaders in senior leadership training with yes. INGOs, many would say, well, we're kind of hovering around the, 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 the second level mm-hmm. where we want our leaders, including on the board and our managers to reflect 
who our primary clients are, but there's still an expectation of assimilating to the white norm. Mm-hmm. And that last level is 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 much more significant. So anyway, I'm just bringing that up as, as another angle at this. That's a, um, very helpful because we have seen in our interviews of governing board members examples where someone is uh, the only person of color on a board and doesn't want to be the one who keeps raising the issues. And it brings uh, the point I seem you made about allyship or having others or, or Tusky meant having kind of a critical mass. It's like, can we bring um, uh, us to a state where the boards embody the diversity that we really think is valuable so that no one feels like they're the only one? <laughs> but right, also, but you know, go ahead. Diversity should not be reduced to only one factor like race or gender. No, it diversity shouldn't. has to be, eventually, it has to be a thought diversity. It has to be a yes. diversity of mind. People diversity should think differently. And people think differently when they mm-hmm. have had different experiences. Yes. So lived experience is a proxy for thought mm-hmm. diversity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. That it. is what lived experience is. Yeah. And tokenism often happens that, okay, you need one third of board members to be women. So you recruit women, but they are of the same socioeconomic profile as others. That's really not adding to much diversity. Yes. Uh, one of the people we interviewed talked about affinity bias and how often in boards, there's um, almost a human desire to get along. <laughs> we want to be around people that we can relate to. Uh, we don't want to be criticizing or con- contradicting each other. So it's kind of like, how do you create a, a space within a board where there, there are, as you call the uh not, it's a diversity beyond just uh, the, the things we traditionally think about a thought diversity a lived experience diversity but there's still some kind of connection that holds people together as a glue where they feel like they can work towards a common cause they can disagree but at the same time um they feel some kind of connection yeah yeah absolutely melissa would you allow me to jump yes in please on? go ahead yeah uh, or would you like to go first, Asim? No, no, please go ahead. Uh, I loved it, uh, Asim, that you brought up this this aspect of thought diversity, so cognitive uh, mm-hmm. diversity, and I'm loving that not only because one of my family members is neuroatypical, mm-hmm. so that's another form of yes. diversity that tends to just like class tends mm-hmm. to not get as much attention as as race or ethnicity or gender is getting in our community at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I also love it because and this this I I wrote. Uh, another essay for uh, um, Civicus uh, report a couple of years ago on the annual state of civil society that basically makes the point that from a cognitive diversity perspective, we're really not as democratic or diverse internally as we would like to think. Um, And in fact, uh, we tend to um, spit out people who think differently from us and and very effectively. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think we could be a little bit more self-critical as a sector about that as well. So if you want, uh, we can uh, attach that uh, essay as well to the show notes. Oh, brilliant. I would love to do that. Uh, And just this this concept comes out very loudly in the research on organizational culture. What is stopping us from having a speak up culture? Why are people so afraid to speak up when they see things happening that are um, constituting fraud or misconduct or abuse? Are people afraid? And often it's a a fear of uh, social ostracization 
uh, speaking up beings, you're kind of betraying the in-group, um, your fear of losing job, of course, fear of reputational risk and more and more and more. But um, we see how whistleblowers can be treated as almost uh, traitors because they speak up about something and suddenly they're no longer in the in-group. It's this, and then if you're having, um, you mentioned Tosca, we can really spit out people that speak up and maybe contradict the, 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 the broader group. And so what we're trying to do in our work on governing well is find out how can governing boards, uh, we, we just mentioned, have their eyes wide open, have their eyes wide open. So be enlarging their radar to be more receptive to hearing things that might be not welcome. So, so that's one of the things I'm interested in um, from your perspectives, both of you have thought about governance is in addition to having very diverse perspectives and lived experiences and on the board, uh, what else can boards be doing to uh, kind of get a sense of our te temperature of what's actually the, 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 the definition of organizational culture in some, some plain language is how we really do things around here. <laughs> in addition to our policies, our codes of conduct, our procedures is how, is how is our behaviors, how we really do. So are there thoughts you have on how boards can be having their eyes wide open to those dynamics? Uh, who would like to start? Maybe uh, Asim, would you like to start? Sure. So I think the assumption is that the board actually wants people to challenge what the board thinks. Mm -hmm. More often than not, powerful people in organizations are subject to confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. They are looking for things that support their perspectives, not that challenges them, because they think they have the wisdom, they have the experience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, they're big donors, they have the money. And they don't want all these people, you know, the know-nothings to challenge them. So they're looking for confirmation bias. And this desire for confirmation bias is in every organization. It's not only NGOs, it happens in firms, happens in governments. So the issue is, given that as human beings, we are subject to confirmation bias, how do we encourage people to speak up? So there is, of course, you know, on one hand, people who speak up, they can be called difficult people who are always raising objections, mm -hmm. troublesome people. Or at the other end, they're rats and snitches. <laughs> the polite word is whistleblower, but you know, they're rats and snitches. <laughs> yeah. So it depends on what kind of organization you have. Mm -hmm. And people who want to have a different perspective, now they get cancelled for political views or for this views or that views. So it's, you know, this culture of silence, it's not only in real authoritarian societies, it's not in democratic societies. You know, the whole cancel debate, cancelling debate is quite important in the context of, uh, you know, NGOs, Hollywood, universities. So if you are actually a board member and you really want to hear the truth, mm -hmm. You have to make very clear that you are cognizant of the confirmation bias and you would actually like to hear different perspectives. So a lot of the successful American presidents always had a kitchen cabinet with warring factions. So you had some climate, you had some foreign policy hawks, you had some foreign policy liberals and let them debate so that at least you hear different perspectives. Mm. 
So that is at the minimum. Mm-hmm. Make sure there are people in the board who mm-hmm. are willing to argue. No argument means there's a problem. Then, of course, the issue is how to make argument constructive so that people are not throwing things at each other. It doesn't become like the U.S. Congress. You know, people actually can resolve their differences or at least agree on common minimum program, recognizing very well nobody has monopoly over truths. We all are searching for truth. We'll never get a perfect solution. We just want to get better solutions. Mm. The human race is still work in progress. <laughs> and as long as we have that modesty and we realize our limitations, I think we can do better. But this thing has to come from the top. It has to be reinforced through verbal cues, through non-verbal cues, mm. that we encourage constructive dissent. There's no party line here. So I think people in leadership positions can do a lot in changing organizational culture because a lot of people look up to them, take cues from them. They watch what, what uh, people with positional power do, not what they say, but yes. what they do. They watch their body language. They watch whether those people always speak first or whether they first seek the views of others so that they try to discourage groupthink, right, mm-hmm. from, from happening too quickly. Um, absolutely. Uh, everything that that that, uh, that you said, Asim, um, resonates with me. I loved it, Melissa, when you talked early on about in-group because, yeah, mm-hmm. I think our in-group, mm-hmm. um, out-group uh, tendencies are are very strong mm-hmm. in fact uh, often you'll hear people talking about their organizations or their sectors as families mm-hmm. and i'm not crazy about that term because mm-hmm. families that's way too close that is too mm-hmm. our, our sector has some aspects of being incestuous <laughs> and i and i don't mean that now uh, in reference to the family but it's just it's mm-hmm. we're too close and it doesn't allow enough mm-hmm. for that cognitive diversity mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. I would say that um, on boards, uh, mm-hmm. like building on what Asim just said, so a board, if board members model that they are seeking divergence, mm-hmm. that um, that they um, don't speak first, as he said, and that they show self-awareness, that they know that because they've had a lot of positional power for quite a long time now, that they probably are... Um, uh, told things that other people think they want to hear right mm-hmm. so self-awareness is always it's not enough but it, mm-hmm. it's definitely uh that continues to me to be an important uh, mm-hmm. foundation and then also building on what asim said when we talk about any kind of diversity whether it's within the organization or within the board we can't be romantic about what the impact of that in the short term is either right so mm-hmm. research that i have seen in case that greater diversity of boards mm-hmm. or of, um, let's say, um, management teams, senior leadership teams, or just staffing in general, in the short term, creates greater issues, greater difficulties with understanding each other, with communicating effectively, mm-hmm. right? With building trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can lead in the short term to, to more conflict. In mm-hmm. the medium, long term, the research is very clear about all the benefits that it provides, starting with the fact that our brains, and that's what I think is also already, I think, referring to, our brains have to work harder when we are in, an, in a diverse group. 
-hmm. We cannot fall back on our assumptions. And that means all of us are actually working harder in a good way, right? Mm -hmm. We're rethinking more and more easily. So, but that does mean that boards then also have to have decent facilitation skills and and conflict management skills. So again, let's not be romantic about that. Absolutely. And I, and I, uh, what we're trying to do at CHS Alliance is support change process that we know will take time and we know will have ups and downs. And this idea of if we truly want to embody our values, if we truly want to implement the standard, we can't expect that we'll be perfect all the time. We have to expect there will be some mistakes along the way. There has to be some openness to um, learning from mistakes. And that came out very strongly in the this week in the Humanitarian Networks and Partnerships Week. Uh, there was a session looking at critical incidents where staff have been um, involved in kidnappings or other uh, similar incidents. And this idea, if you don't take that incident and learn from it, you are going to have a lot of world of pain later on (laughs) for the staff involved, for the people affected, but also your organization is going to be, you can mess up once, but if it keeps happening and you're not changing, um, the courts aren't going to be so happy in the future with that. And I, and I, uh, I, I know that the time is ticking. So I just wanted to then skip to the last question, which is about questions. So in our interviews of board members and other experts on governance, there's been um, a real awareness about the role of governing boards is not to be operational for the most part. It's to um, advise, encourage, steer, stretch, but most importantly, ask the right questions. Um, Someone said, put your nose in, but your fingers out. And when you smell something, it doesn't pass the smell test. Keep asking. And then if something is off, go visit the site, ask for more detail, these things. So I'm curious from your perspective, after we've just had this conversation and and your research um, and your experiences, um, if you were to advise boards of aid organizations on some questions that they could be routinely asking, um, what could those questions look like? Um, who would like to start? Perhaps Tosca. Oh, I was going to suggest us, but <laughs> I'm happy to. So, you know, there are obviously tons of questions that could be useful, right? So ultimately, um, I would like to ask a couple of questions um, if I have to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is hard. Um, <laughs> that, that indicate to me that as a board, I want to be open Mm-hmm. to hearing from my CEO and senior team what they need from me so as a board. So what do you need from me, senior leadership team, to do as an organization and for you as, as leaders with positional power to do your best job? Second question is, what are we currently not doing as a board that you feel we should be doing. So asking for that feedback, because that's modeling again, asking for feedback as a board is modeling of what you want them to do towards the, not just their staff, but towards um, you know, program participants through constituency voice or other mechanisms like that. I would ask the CEO, um, do you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day? Okay. 
but on the other hand, um, also, are you as an organization tracking what your primary constituents think of the quality and type of uh, quality and type of services you offer, and what are the trends over time? Are you tracking that? And then finally, as an individual board member or as board chair, I would say, tell me when it's time for me to make space for another person. Those are just some amongst many. Wow, these are really good questions, juicy ones. Um, how about you, Asim? What would you be asking? So I often have doctoral students sharing their dissertation prospectus or dissertations with me with very complicated statistical model, which is okay. I can handle that. And I often ask, that, can we go down to the first principle? What is your research question? Can you tell me what's a dependent variable? And I do think anybody in a supervisory position, I think Tosca's point is very well taken, that boards should not get into tactical decisions. They are not the feet on the ground. They are you know, at a, at a level above. And their contribution is to ask basic questions. Because people who are involved in tactical operations, sometimes, not always, may forget what the basic questions are. So for an NGO, who is your constituency? Who are you serving? And how do you know you're serving them well? What are the processes, procedures in place to make sure that you're serving them well? How do you get feedback? And how do you make sure that people in your organizations speak truth to power without fearing reprisal, without being branded as a snitch? Of course, you know, organization must be motivated by a common mission. You can't have people, you know, doing different things. Then organization loses coherence. But as a board member, the idea is to ask, what is the organization doing that is working well? And in their opinion, how can things be better? And I love the point Tosca made. Eventually, board members should be rotated out. And people must have, you know, there should be term limits mm -hmm. because it's important to get new perspectives. A person mm -hmm. who's been on the board for far too long mm -hmm. has become part of the system. It's part of the in-group. It's part of the in-group and has got less ability to provide an outsider's perspective. Mm. So I think these are, these are, I think, basic principles in any organization. Mm -hmm. Where you're a non-profit board, you're a business board or so on and so forth that, you know, try to understand where the bodies are buried mm -hmm. and what is working well, because you want to reinforce things which are working well, mm. because organization does good things and bad things. You can't mm -hmm. only focus on bad things. There are also good things that have to be rewarded and reinforced. So both positive and negative reinforcement has to be done, but eventually how it's going to be done is a tactical decision. Mm -hmm. And the board should not start running the organization. That is right. backseat driving, very unhealthy. Yeah. But framing the questions can be really helpful. Tasi, did you want to react to Asim's questions? Not, not react to, there was one more thought, but that's taking another step back. And that mm -hmm. is, um, you know, Melissa, in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. as a sector, we've done a lot of introspective introspection mm -hmm. right i'm just going to use that one kind of umbrella term introspection on what are our faults our ethical mm -hmm. um uh mistakes mm -hmm. um and where are we um 
you know, not nearly as diverse as we would like to think of ourselves and on and not nearly as equitable, etc. Mm-hmm. All of that is necessary. Mm-hmm. All of that is very necessary. But we are we are doing that on top of already pretty um, highly deliberative participatory cultures, mm-hmm. right? Where we spend already spend a lot of time deliberating internally. Yes. And I I, I worry mm-hmm. regularly yes. um, that all of this is adding even more to navel gazing. Yes. And in the meantime, the outside world keeps changing. And some <laughs> things are getting ever more worrisome, right? Yes. Such as the war in Ukraine, climate change, you name it. Mm-hmm. So that our external, do we have enough of an external focus? Mm-hmm. I kind of highly doubt it at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody said to me in an interview, he said, mm-hmm. I feel like we're, we're, we're over indexing on self flagellation on punishing ourselves for what is wrong in a sector. Mm-hmm. I have some sympathy for that uh, view. So I just wanted to kind of give that as a, as a nuance. I, I don't know what both you, Melissa and I seem to think about that point, but I worry about this. I worry about this too. And I, and I, uh, I was telling a scene before he, before we started recording um, my, my primary interest in this line of inquiry started with the question, why are so many humanitarians burning out and having a depression and having anxiety and having post-traumatic stress disorder and using alcohol as coping mechanisms, humanitarians two to three times more likely than the general population. And it depends on your region and your status. Of course, if you're classified as so-called professional or not, of course, all of this depends, but the fact that we are having such high rates of people in our sector suffering, do we need to bring on more suffering? Um, can we bring in a bit of compassion? And you mentioned the word empathy, as seen before. It's can we um, hold the tension where we want to do better and we know we can do better. And at the same time, we recognize that we are under extreme pressure <laughs> coming from so many directions. Um, can we hold that tension? And I and I really like the questions that you pose about um, how boards themselves can be modeling. So boards are doing oversight. We want to encourage organizations to do better. At the same time, we don't want to create more <laughs> pain that if it's not necessary. Can boards help prioritize the questions that we're asking? Because we are we have only so many hours in the day. Um, I don't know, Asim, did you want to say more? <laughs> oh, I think you're asking a very good question. So it's a very tough one that a lot of the people in the humanitarian sector, you know, it's so depressing. You go there and the problems keep on expanding. You hear all these horror stories mm. and, you know, you sometimes feel guilty about your own privilege. Yes. But my God, you know, it's an accident of birth. I'm on this side of the table. Mm-hmm. And you are helpless. You're essentially doing a band-aid thing. Mm. And then you come back and then you are subject to scrutiny. And you're doing this <laughs> wrong. You're doing that wrong. And are you compassionate <laughs> enough? And this and that. <laughs> and then you say, you know, I've, I've had enough. Oh, yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a job. You know, I, I also have a life. Absolutely. So I think these are excellent questions. And I actually don't know if you have a general principle on where to draw the line. But this is an issue that has to be confronted. This Mm -hmm. is an issue that organizations, boards, and the teams themselves have to confront. Where should the line be drawn? Mm -hmm. 
so that people retain a sense of autonomy, a sense of self-respect, mm-hmm. a sense of joy in their work, even in depressing times, and not feel that they are constantly being monitored. You know, there's somebody bleeding down their neck and they have to fill out this paperwork on best practices. Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And it's, it's a pain. Yeah, someone said, uh, my colleague Bona, he talks about bringing the human back into humanitarian, mm-hmm. coming back to our original purpose, remembering why we're here. And of course, we have to do certain things because that's the way things are, but trying to retain some of the original essence, um, hopefully will connect us back to, I, I think the word connection is super important here. So uh, we're, we're reaching the hour. I wanted to see... Um, if if you wanted to say any final words, and for our listeners who'd like to know more about your work, how they can get in touch with you. Tosca, would you like to start any final words and how they can get in touch with you? I think I had my final word already, uh, mm-hmm. so I will not add another one to that. Mm-hmm. Just about uh, where people can find me. So mm-hmm. my website is uh, fiveoaksconsulting.org. That is mm-hmm. five with the number five and then oaks as in uh, oak trees, plural, consulting.org. Uh, I also am on LinkedIn, so people can find me there. And um, my small team and I also offer a course on virtual and hybrid team leadership. And so people can find out more about that on my website as well. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Melissa. I truly enjoyed this conversation between Asim and you and me. Thank you so much, Tosca. Um, and Asim, any final words and how people can get in touch with you or in well, your work at the, least? The final word is hats off to all of you <laughs> who are doing a very important work. And, you know, although people like me are sometimes critical, but that doesn't mean we don't appreciate you. Mm. And we don't admire the selfless work that thousands of people are doing every day. Because humanity is facing a crisis and the crisis is getting worse. Mm-hmm. And we do need, you know, the nonprofit sector, the third sector, whatever you want to call it. To help out because the governments are failing, the markets are failing. Nonprofits themselves are failing, mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of them are succeeding. Mm-hmm. And one has to take a nuance and a balanced view. So, hats off to all of you. Feel free to email me or Google me, Asim Prakash, University of Washington. My smiling and green <laughs> face, both at the same time, will turn up and send me an email. Happy to chat over Zoom or email. Brilliant. And we'll have pictures of both of your smiling faces as we promote this episode. Thank you to both of you, Asim and Tuska. Wonderful talking with you. I have so many more questions to ask, but we'll have to bring you back on for another time. Uh, Wishing you all the best and enjoy your weekend. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Asim Prakash and Tosca Bruno van Bijvegen. I want to thank them for sharing their time and insights. I learned so much and I want to learn more. A big thanks to our editor, Ziada Abayid, as well as CHS Alliance members and our supporters. We will be back soon with another episode of Embodying Change. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.